For 2,000 years, out of joy, the Church of Jesus Christ has spread across the globe. For 2,000 years, men, women, and children have joined themselves to this church, bonded by a common faith. For 2,000 years, these people together have by faith proclaimed what they believe to the world. Many have used a simple summary, the Apostles' Creed, to do just that. This fall at Holy Cross, with the church through the ages, we do the same. And look closer at how this simple creed has summarized the teaching of the Bible and has gone from being just what Christians believe to what I believe. All right, kids ages 3 through pre-K can head down to Holy Cross Kids Worship if you'd like. If not, like I said, we love kids, so you can just... Hang out with them, that's fine. Uh, if you have a Bible with you, you should open it uh, to the book of 1 Peter. 1 Peter's in the New Testament, probably about more than two-thirds of the way through your Bible. Uh, getting close to the end, maybe three-quarters of the way through. We're going to be in 1 Peter chapter 2 uh, this morning. If you don't have a Bible with you, that's okay. The text is in your order of worship. That's in your little bulletin thing. If you don't own a Bible, we've got some on the back table we'd love to give you. Grab one on your way out. Um, the text is also going to be pr- printed or projected behind me. Uh, either way that you can do, any way that you can have the Bible in front of you, though, is important. Uh, helpful thoughts from Rick are more than likely neither helpful nor from me. So if we can tell that they're from the Bible, that's going to be better. Okay? Now, we've been taking the fall to look through the creeds, we've, the Apostles' Creed. We've only got a few weeks left. So we're coming close to the end of our time there. And if you are kind of from this area, maybe you're not, maybe you're. Like most of the people in this church are like transplants, but there's a few of you that are from this area, so you know that, uh, that being in the valley, when the valley culture and Christianity kind of get mixed together, what you get is a strong kind of anti-authoritarian, highly autonomous uh, vibe. And so we become suspicious of things like creeds. And that's true whether we're in the church or outside of the church. We just become suspicious. Isn't this just like some kind of institutional power trying to enforce their will upon us? Creeds, though, uh, they allow us to do a few things. First and foremost, they allow us to stand on the wisdom of others. Right? I don't know if you, if you recognize this, but the, the Christianity did not begin with us. Right? It, it didn't begin with, with us here in this room. It began... Uh, 2,000 years ago, which means that very smart, wise, godly men and women have been thinking about and processing through the faith and and the scriptures and how those interplay with one another for 2,000 years. And so what that means is we can stand on their shoulders, we can stand upon their wisdom. So that's one of the things it does. Another thing it does, it, it balances our normal thoughts. Right? Most of us here in this room, we ask certain questions of the Bible and not others. And so what the creeds do is they help balance those, because more than likely those are not the same questions that were asked uh, 1,700 years ago when this thing was written. And so it helps to balance out. We would just focus on what's important to us. This helps balance out and, and create a full-orbed Christianity. And lastly, it helps us to push against whatever philosophy is in vogue at the time. We should always be suspicious on some level when the church gives up what it's thought and believed for thousands of years. And that thing that they've given up all of a sudden just coincides with the spirit of the age. That doesn't mean we outright reject that and say, well, we obviously shouldn't do that. It means we should be suspicious and go, is this, is this actually from the Bible? Or is this just because this feels right because it's the air we breathe Monday through Saturday? The creeds help us to do that. Okay? 
This week we come to the question of the church. And I, I said this earlier, but the church has had kind of a bad rap since like the 1960s in our country, which happens to coincide with a general rebellion against authority institutions. Probably not coincidental. Again, spirit of the age. And that makes this part of the creed uniquely difficult because most of us don't believe, right? We don't believe that the church is essential to Christian faith, do we? That believing in the church is essential to what it means to be a Christian. And yet, here it is. What we're going to see this morning, though, is the church is central to the purposes of God. It's not disposable, and it's not optional. So if you have your place, we're in 1 Peter 2, if you'd stand. That's our habit here uh, as, the, as the scriptures are being read. Just two verses this morning. Should be really quick. As we do this, though, I want to remind us uh, that our confession, the Westminster Confession of Faith, wisely tells us that when we hear the word read and especially preach, that our, our goal, our duty, is to add faith and love to that. In other words, we are not just, you're not just passive receivers in this moment. You're an active participant. This is part of our worship. Worship did not end when you stopped singing. This is part of worship. And actively we receive God's word as that and humble ourselves under it. So let's, let's hear it in that way. But you, you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. This is God's word given for our flourishing. Would you pray with me? Lord, over this time we ask your blessing. We don't need to call you into this place. You called us here. You are the one that called the church into this building, and we thank you for that. But as we come as your church, as your bride, to, to, to uh, submit ourselves to your word, we ask that you would open our hearts to it, because we know that if you, if, if you don't open our hearts, we will harden them. We will. We'll harden them, Lord. And we would not leave here hardened. We want to leave here receptive of all that you are doing and have done and will do. And so we ask that you would do that. No matter where we are in our walk with Jesus this morning, whether we are here thirsty and hungry for God's word or we're here skeptical and uh, maybe this is our first time in church, I pray that you would meet us and that you would do what all of us need, all of us. We need to hear your gospel preached. We need you, you, Jesus, by your spirit to preach your gospel to our hearts. So we ask that you do that now. Let everything that Christ has done, his cross, his empty tomb, all of those things come to the forefront. Let the one who speaks fall to the wayside. Jesus, you alone hold the words of eternal life. And so we, we ask that you would speak because we're listening. In Christ's name, amen. Have a seat. So the two parts of the Apostles' Creed that give evangelicals, and, and this church is part of the evangelical tradition, uh, the, the two parts of the creed that give evangelicals the most heartburn are uh, when, when we say uh, about Jesus that he descended into hell, right? And, and we talked about that several weeks ago, and we said that doesn't mean that he went to a place called hell. Uh, the Bible would say that place doesn't exist yet, by the way. Um, but, but instead, what that means is that he, he lived under the power of death for a time. Okay, that's how our confession says that he existed under the power of death, that he experienced hell, that he took the judgment of God and took the fullness of that by living under the power of death for a time. The second thing that evangelicals struggle with is the belief, I believe 
in the Holy Spirit, the Holy Catholic Church, right? And some of you are like, yeah, I've been wondering, why do we say that? Because we, we confess the creed like two, three times a month. So you're probably some of you are like, we're not Catholic. I mean, I know this is Holy Cross, but we're not Catholic, right? Um, well, no, uh, not in that way, okay? The word Catholic uh, means universal, means universal. And so to say that you believe in the, the Catholic Church or the Holy Catholic Church means that you believe in God's church spread throughout the world is one, it's holy, it's apostolic, all those things the Nicene Creed says. What it doesn't mean is the Roman Catholic Church, okay? That's a specific branch of the Christian tradition, not what we confess in the creed, okay? With me? Now, for some of us, though, that doesn't really help because we don't really like the church, whether that's because of real or perceived problems, right? Church is full of hypocrites. Uh, why, why do I need other people to tell me about what to believe in Jesus? I don't need other people. I can be my own Christian myself. Church is full of people that are going to hurt me. Some of those things are true. Some of those things aren't. What we really want, though, is we want... Uh, we want Jesus without institutional religion, right? But here's the problem, and it's something that uh, Kathy read for us. Jesus build, built the church. It's not a creation of man. It's not a creation of people who got together and said, I know what we'll do. We'll enforce our will and power on everybody by creating this church thing. Jesus built his church. He established it. And by that, I don't mean just some kind of amorphous, non-established entity. I mean the local church. He said, I'll build it and Gates Hells won't withstand it. Now, does that mean the church is perfect? Well, no. Listen, if Jesus only intended for perfect things to be his, he wouldn't have picked me or you, right? What it does mean, though, is you can't have Jesus and reject his people. Can't have Jesus and reject his people. The song that we sang this morning, can't care for Christ with no regard for his church because that's his bride. It would be very much like you coming up to me and being like, Rick, I'd love to hang out with you, but your wife, I can't stand her. You know what that would mean to me? You're never coming around me again. So don't tell me that if you think that. Anyway, uh, moving on. Um, I'm sure you don't because she's the winsome one of the two of us. Um, But our passage this morning gets at the question of why that is. Why is, why is it that you can't have one without the other? What is this thing we call the church? What is it? And so what we're going to be looking at this morning in this passage, in, we're going to look at it in three ways. Outlines in your bulletin, as always, if that's helpful. If not, leave it there. We're going to look at a particular identity. The church is being a part of a particular identity. It's part of being a missional identity. And it's about a doxological identity, which just means praise, okay? A particular identity, a missional identity, and a doxological identity. And what we're going to see is this. What we're going to see is that the church is not an event. So in that way, you don't go to church. And it's not a building. It's an identity. Church is not an event or a building. It's an identity. Okay? Now, like last week, I I said last week that what we looked at when we looked at the Holy Spirit was a little more teachy than preachy. This may be as well. So I just need to hang with me if you can um, as, we, as we begin here. This letter was written by Peter, the apostle, the same one that uh, Kathy read about in Matthew 18 who declared Jesus as the Christ um, that Jesus made huge pronouncements about. But it's written by Peter uh, and it's written to Christians in what is now Turkey. 
And it's, it's written as a way to help Christians to live under the, uh, not just potential, but the very real experience of suffering. Christians are suffering, and so he's writing to them to help them along that. And one of the ways that he does that is by pointing out that we are not alone, that we're part of a people. We're part of a, an identity, a group. See, the church is not an event or a building. It's an identity. And so Peter helps us there first by talking about the fact that it's a particular identity. Look down at verse 9 if you have your Bibles in front of you. He says, but you, you're a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession. Now stop there. We're going to get to the priesthood thing in a second. That's a very, very important thing. But, but first, let's, let's tackle the rest of these. First, he says, you are a chosen race. Now, um, now, in our society, to say race is, is already to turn up the temperature on the conversation, right? As soon as we even enter the word and say race, that suddenly changes the conversation totally because we bring the full weight of our national narrative and, and the, the brokenness and struggles with that into this discussion. Uh, but, but we need to hear this as it was meant because all of these point back to the Old Testament. As a matter of fact, they point back to what we heard Kathy read from Exodus, Right? So all of these are Old Testament phrases and, and specifically things that talk about God's people. So when he says race, your chosen race, he doesn't mean ethnicity. That's what we mean. We mean some form of ethnicity. He's not talking about an ethnicity. What Peter means as race as in the human race. It would be the same as saying you are a chosen people. You are a chosen people. You see, the crazy thing about God's church in the New Testament, uh, that often, sadly and perhaps even sinfully, is not reflected in our local churches, is that the church was always meant to be something that extended beyond those divisions that we set up for ourselves, be them ethnic, uh, we would say racial, socioeconomic, uh, gender, age. It's supposed, to, it's supposed to span all of those things and draw them all together. In fact, that the first time in which the church, uh, that Christians were called Christians... It was in a city in which this was going on and people had no category for it. How do we define what's going on when you see Romans and barbarians and Scythians and Jews and Greeks all hanging out together? What do you, how do we define this group of people that seems to, they don't seem to care whether or not they're rich or poor. They're not divided in that way. How do we define them and say, well, I guess we'll have to come up with another term. Let's, um, Christian. To be a Christian means that it's a, a group of people with, for whom all of the normal divisions in our society, ancient or modern, are transcended. So we are a chosen race. He also says we're a holy nation. Now, that does not mean geopolitical. I know that um, it, it is, seems very common, even in today's parlance, and I'm not sure how this has lasted as long as it has, to imagine a holy nation speaking to a geopolitical entity. Right? Whether that be America or somewhere else. That is not what is being talked about here. God's people exist as a kingdom within the kingdoms of the world. And this speaks to a, to a reality that no matter whether we are American or Chinese or Afghani, we are under the lordship of Jesus. And in that way, we are holy. But, you know, when we say holy, you and I tend to think when we say holy, we think pure. But that's not generally what the Bible's talking about when it talks about holy. Uh, because there were, um, in the temple, there were like 
utensils that were called holy. And I've never really seen a morally pure spoon. Maybe you have. I don't think that's what he meant. Holy meant set apart, set apart for God's use, set apart. This is distinct from another because it's for God. So, of course, it includes morality, but fundamentally it means set apart for God. We live as Christians in different earthly nations, but we do so as one holy nation within those nations. And lastly, he says that we are a people for God's own possession. And we spoke about this last week when we talked about the Holy Spirit. But the Bible often sees God's work of redemption uh, in part as God claiming us for himself. Gathering us saying, you're, you're now mine. I bought you. Mine. Right? Now here's the important thing about all these things. Chosen race. Holy nation. People of God's possession. Those things imply boundaries. They imply boundaries. In other words, this is something that's true of one group of people that's not true of everyone. They imply boundaries. And this is a struggle for some of us, right? Because we don't like the fact that the church has boundaries. Shouldn't God not have, shouldn't God be kind of open and, and open to everyone at the same time, no matter what they think, believe, feel, do? Shouldn't, isn't that, well, the reality is, is that all communities have boundaries. Even the most tolerant of communities rejects the intolerant person, right? Every community has boundaries, and they are enforced. The boundaries of God's people, the boundaries of his church, are set by him. And this means that the church is a formal entity. It is organized. It has to be. The New Testament teaches that, it has, that this church has leaders, and these leaders are called elders and deacons. It has practices. It has beliefs. It has uh, marks, things that, that show it to be the true church as opposed to the false one. The Protestant reformers marked out three of these. Some of these may be familiar to you. Maybe they're not. Uh, but the, the marks of the true church, it's the preaching of the word, okay? Can't be a Christian church if you're not preaching the word of God. Uh, the, the rightful administration of the sacraments. And then the practice of discipline. And that's the one that gets us, right? And we're like, that's so mean. Why do we need to do that? The, it's controversial, but, you, but quite frankly, you can't have... The preaching of the gospel and the administration, the right administration of the sacraments without discipline. In other words, without declaring who should and should not participate in them. In other words, listen, and, and I love you. If this is you, I love you. And I'm so glad you're here. I, I, I'm not just saying that. It's true. If you don't have faith in Jesus, you don't believe in the resurrection, don't even believe in God, you can't be baptized. I mean... You're not a Christian. That's okay. It's not a big deal. Like, you're not a Christian. That's fine. In the same way, like, if, if you don't have that vibrant faith in Christ, you're not holding to him, like, why would you come to the Lord's table? Like, this, this is for Christians. There are boundaries, and it's okay. Those boundaries don't mean we hate you. <laughs> we love you. They just mean there are boundaries. Last thing on this point. Uh, this, this idea of structures and systems and boundaries and all that stuff isn't simply true in some universal sense. We are meant to be part of a local church. I don't have time to go into all of these, but in the New Testament, there are like a bazillion of these what are called one another statements. 
Do this for one another, love one another, serve one another, submit yourselves one to another. It's all these one another's. And, and these one another statements imply that we have committed ourselves not to a, an amorphous, non-distinct group that may or may not exist when we walk through the world, but to a local group of people. You can't say you're a follower of Jesus in the New Testament without being a part of a local church. It's just that simple. Now, that doesn't mean like, well, wait a minute, what about so-and-so in the Bible or so-and-so in the Bible? Uh, those, are the, those are the exceptions that prove the rule, friends. Um, the church is central. But how does that happen? How do we become part of, a, of the church, right? You see, what many of us hate about the boundary question when we talk about the church is it sounds exclusive, and it is, but, but when we hear exclusivity, what we think is we keep other people out because we think we're better than them, or the church thinks they're better than other people, and that's why they keep the others out. But look at the ways in which these groups are described again. Chosen. Holy. God's own. Here's what this means. You may have chosen, frankly, to be part of this local church. Some of you did. I know you did, right? But you were not the driving force in being a part of God's universal church. That happened purely out of grace. Here's what I mean. The Bible teaches us that every person in the world is born, like naturally, by our nature, turned away from God. That we are bent away from him. We were made for a dependent relationship on him, but now are bent away from him. And some of that, some of us in this room work that out, work out that, that being bent away from him in terms of immorality. And what I mean by that is like we're trying to find satisfaction apart from, from God. That's what we normally think of when we think of someone turned from God. But others of us work out that independence, that bent awayness from God in terms of morality. We want to try and find a status apart from God. I want to, my success will define me, not Jesus. My, my, uh, my responsibility will be what defines me. That will be the status I cling to, not Jesus. But friends, the Bible would teach us that both of those people are lost. Both. Because God isn't looking for good Let me say that again. God is not looking for good. God is looking for dependent. And you can be very good and very independent. Maybe you are here this morning. But since we are all by nature independent of God, he has to act first to move towards us. That's that's what Peter means when he says chosen. We are chosen by God. Not because of what we've done. Not because of what we've done. We were enemies. We're going to get to that a little later. But purely out of grace, we are holy. We are set apart for God, by God, and we are God's own possession. And all of this is because of the work of Jesus. He is the one who sets us apart, who makes us holy by his life, by his death, by his resurrection. He is the one who purchases us for himself by his own blood. And he comes by the Spirit to bring us to life when we want nothing to do with him. And he gives us the gift of faith in him. The church is not a group of people that is, that for whom uh, God is lucky to have them. Nor are they a group of people who are all together because they're better than others. It is a group purchased by God, loved and chosen by him, set apart by him, all by grace. In other words, there is nothing wrong with anyone out there that's not wrong with us in here. The difference is not in our activity. The difference is in the mercy and grace of God. And if it's enough for us, it could be enough for anyone. 
So the church is a particular identity. Uh, it's a group with boundaries, but it's also a missional identity. Look back at verse 9. This is where we get to the royal priesthood part. And, and, and as we talk about the royal priesthood, again, remember what uh, we heard from Kathy Reed from Exodus, that God had declared this upon his people in Exodus. That they are to be a kingdom of priests. Now, the problem is that you and I probably, more than likely, have a very messed up view of what a priest is. Right? Because when we think of priest, we think of religious professional. Some of you are like, I have no intention of doing what you do, right? Good, uh, that's fine. Uh, I wouldn't either uh, at times. But what, what we often think is that a priest is someone who serves the God, right? And as a matter of fact, in the pagan world, what priests would do is they would sacrifice for the deity to feed the deity. The gods needed something. They needed worship. They needed belief. They needed meat, And so you would sacrifice, and people would bring their sacrifice to get the God to do something for them, because everyone knows if you give someone a hamburger, they're more inclined to you, right? And so that's what the God, that's what a priest would do. But that's not the role in the Bible. If you're to read the Old Testament, especially Leviticus and Deuteronomy, two books that I know are high on your personal devotion list, okay? Those of you who didn't get that, that was totally, that was totally facetious, all right? Uh, But if you were to read those two books, what you would see is a very different picture of what a priest is. Priests in the Old Testament are agents of reconciliation. That's what they are. They are agents of reconciliation. They are mediators. They, they, They stand, in a sense, between two parties that are alienated. And here's what I mean. In the Old Testament, we think about this maybe with God, but in the Old Testament, there was this sacrifice. It was called the fellowship offering. Here's the way this worked. If you had a beef with somebody in this room, and y'all had a, a real beef, like not, not like, eh, dude kind of said something mean. I mean like real beef. Like there's real problems between the two of you. What you would do is you'd, you'd try and work that out, and then you'd go to the priest, and he would sacrifice this, this offering, and there was a... The, it, it, What happened after that was the meat that he sacrificed, then the two of you sat down to a meal together. In a a sense, it was affecting the reconciliation. You were reconciled as you sat down to the meal. The same thing is true spiritually. The priest would do the same with sacrifices between us and God. The point is the priest literally would hold out his hands between two parties and would seek to bring them together. Two alienated parties. The amazing thing about the priesthood in the Old Testament is that God, who's the offended party, is the one who establishes priests to bring the parties together. When's the last time that you as the offended party was like, all right, I need to to go to the person that's offended me and I love them so much I want to be reconciled with them. I hope it happens. If you're Christian, it should. But it should happen because of what has happened to us. Because that's what God has done. So when Peter says that this is what God's people are, we need to understand that our role is not primarily to one another. Priests do not exist for other priests. Priests exist for others, those outside. Right? And this is because, look, as, as a kingdom of priests, Jesus has already reconciled us to himself. He is literally the high priest who literally held his hands wide. 
Suspended between heaven and earth, rejected by both, bringing together alienated parties. He is the one who did it. It isn't, to re- it isn't to one another that we are a kingdom of priests. It is to the world. The church exists as God's priests, moving into the world, seeking to see those alienated from God to be reconciled to him. That means that as the church, we do not exist for us. Let me say that again, because I know some of y'all have been going to church a long time, and that is probably one of the most radical things you've ever heard. Because what you're thinking is, wait a minute, what about my small group and my programs and my this and my that? Isn't this all supposed to be, I come in, I get cared for, I get nurtured? Not primarily. The church is a kingdom of priests. We exist for the sake of others. William Temple uh, once said that the church is the only institution that does not exist for itself, but for those who are outside of it. And that is because, friends, our design as humans originally was to be turned outward for others. Not for our little tribe, our individualness, or anything of that nature. We were to be turned out for others. And if that is the case, then of course, so would the organization comprised of those renewed by God be. We exist to that end. Now, does that mean that we don't care for each other? No, of course not. But it does mean that we best care for each other as we are going together to those who don't know Jesus. Blessing our city. Serving and loving. We are a kingdom of priests. And we do this act through uh, proclamation. Look look again at verse 9. Because here's the purpose clause. I know you all love when I bring up grammar. You're a chosen race, royal priesthood, holy nation, people for God's own possession. That. It would be just as... as, uh, Valid if you put a so in front of it. So that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. This means, friends, that we are a people of the gospel. See, the other role of of priests in the Old Testament is not just to affect reconciliation. They taught. They taught the Bible. They, They taught God's word to people. Some of us think, well, wasn't that what the prophets did? No. The prophets showed up when people stopped listening to the Bible and they proclaimed the stuff that that God promised would happen as discipline to those who didn't do it. But it was the priests who taught. They proclaimed the word, telling of God's acts of redemption. And now, friends, we do that when we tell how God has done all of those works of redemption for us. And so in that way, yes, we are a prophetic people. Because when we go about our days in our places of work, in the schools that we live in, we can't pretend that everything's okay. That we're okay. That everyone's okay. We're not. It's not okay. Everything's messed up. I'm messed up. You're messed up. The world's messed up. Things are not okay. By nature, we are in darkness. But here's what it means to proclaim his excellencies. It means speaking to others about God's grace. Think about it. What is it that makes... If you're a Christian here this morning, what is it that makes God so excellent? It isn't that he made stuff. There are lots of stories of lots of gods who made stuff. They're not that great. And it's not that he gave rules. There's lots of stories about lots of deities that gave rules, and they're not that great either. What makes God so excellent is not that he made things, not that he gave a morality. It's that even though we betrayed him, hated him, took his love and rejected it, that he came in Jesus 
while we hated him and died for us. He came while we hated him to live perfectly and die sacrificially for us. What makes him so great is not that he gives us a path to walk back to him. It's that he walks the path to get us back to himself. That is what makes God so excellent. If that is not what you are proclaiming, you're not proclaiming the excellencies of God. You may be proclaiming a morality. It may even be a true morality. But it's not what makes God so awesome. What makes him so great is that he knows us fully and he loves us completely. And he asks only that we give up on ourselves and trust in Jesus. That is what we proclaim. And that is why a people of a missional identity go to being people of a doxological identity. I said that word doxology just means praise, right? We are a people of praise. Do do you realize that you and I were made to worship? I know worship is a churchy word, right? But every human being was designed to worship. We will all worship something. Because to worship means simply to ascribe something ultimate worth. And every one of us in this room thinks that something is ultimately worthy in our lives. For some of us, that probably is Jesus. For others of us, it's a band or money, financial security, success, fame, Good kids. We all worship something, whether Christian or not. And we will serve whatever it is we think is ultimately worthy. We will praise and declare the excellencies of whatever it is. Whatever it is. But we were made to praise God, to worship God, to find him of ultimate worth because he is of ultimate worth. And when we come together as the church, that is why we do what we do. That is why we sing and we praise and and we, we worship God, sing to God. We declare his excellencies. This is why corporate worship is so important. We are to be a people marked by the fact that we praise God for everything he has done. Does this mean we are always happy? No. What it does mean, though, is that no matter our circumstances, even if through tears, we still praise our God. Again, this is why corporate worship is so important. When we do what we do here on Sunday morning, each of us comes into this room bringing different things with us. I say that a lot, but I wonder if you recognize how true that is. Some of you are here this morning, and you're struggling to praise God. Because right now, your life is a train wreck. And it feels fake to praise him. Listen, you're going to praise something. If you don't have the faith to praise God right now, you can come here and know that we have enough faith for you. We'll hold you up. What you may find is that you can't even raise your voice at the beginning of worship. It's like, I, I, I just can't. I don't have it. But... Over time, your heart is softened as you're reminded of the gospel, as you experience the love of God's people, as as the Spirit of God moves through the sacraments. And so maybe it becomes a little easier by the end of worship, what was so hard at the beginning. But listen, we can't do this if we don't gather together. This is why the book of Hebrews, also in the New Testament, commands us to not neglect the gathering together. And then he goes on to say, which some of you have... So I don't know if you thought that 
skipping Sunday worship was like an American invention. Like we, we, we made up Bedside Baptist. We didn't. Like it was going on in the New Testament, okay? Uh, as we worship together, our hearts are formed by God. We express our love for God and we experience God in a way that we don't otherwise. So our identity has got to be as a people who praise our God. But the reason for that is found in verse 10. Why is the church a community of praise? Well, it's because of what we've been given. Peter says, once you were not a people, but now you're God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. This is, again, uh, Old Testament language. What you'll often find in the New Testament as you're reading the New Testament, I know we like to think that the New Testament and the Old Testament are fundamentally disparate books, right? Right? And we have one kind of God in the Old Testament, one kind of God in the New Testament. What we see in the, New, in the New Testament, honestly, is just exposition on what the Old Testament already said. They're just teasing out the themes and bringing them out in a way that maybe is harder to, harder to hear in the stories. But this, again, is Old Testament language. This is from the prophet Hosea. And you see, the reason for this is so misunderstood we understand ourselves to be basically good. And some of you are like, no, I'm reformed. Yeah, you do. I get total depravity. No, you don't. We all see ourselves as basically good. We know we're broken, right? But by that, what we mean is that we, we try hard, but we just can't get it. Right? Right? Isn't that what we think when we think broken? Yeah, I'm bro- I, can't, I just can't. I try. I try to be good, I just can't do it. I'm just too broken. I can't get it. That's not what the Bible teaches when it talks about broken. The Bible teaches that by nature, by nature, that darkness that it said that he delivered us out of, we loved it. We weren't miserable there. Some of y'all have, haven't been Christians that long. You can remember. I wasn't miserable. I actually kind of liked it. I loved the darkness. The the Bible says that we love the darkness. We love our sin. We love that which causes us harm. It isn't, like, God isn't merciful in the way in which we normally think. And where, where he's saying, oh, you poor little broken person. I can see you want to do good but can't. That isn't mercy. That is simply God lowering the bar of justice to try hard. That is not mercy. Mercy is found in the fact that we, as a people, were not a people. And that means that we were running from God. That we wanted nothing to do with him. Now some of you are like, yes I did. I went to church all my life and I liked going to church. I just didn't hear the gospel. That is not God. The God that you were chasing, if you were in places where the gospel was not proclaimed, is not the God of the Bible. It may be a God who has a similar moral code. It might be a God who, who seems to do the same kind of things. He may even be a God in Trinity. That is not the God of the Bible. If the gospel is not present... That is not the God that is revealed to us in the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus. It's an imitator. You may call him God. You may call him Jesus. It's just not. We wanted nothing to do with God. 
the Bible literally teaches that we would rather have had hell than God. In his mercy, he saw us running happy and content towards hell and grabbed us and said, not you. Not you. He chose us, ransomed us, rescued us, and turned our hearts to him. That, friends, is mercy. Jesus died for us while enemies. Not friends, not wayward but well-meaning, not even rather indifferent. Enemies. That is the mercy of God. If you don't see that, if that's hard for you to grasp, if you are just simply offended by that, it's no wonder it's hard for you to proclaim his excellencies. He's not really very excellent. All he does is kind of throw some some offer out into the nether, and then we have to somehow build it up in us while we're happy and go lucky on our way to hell? No, no. Mercy is found in God reaching down and rescuing me. Jesus saves sinners is the gospel. It is not Jesus makes salvation possible. It is Jesus saved me while a sinner. That is the gospel. That is the mercy of God. And if you think that God owes you, that you've gotten a raw deal, no wonder it's hard for you to praise him. Friends, the church is about mercy. Is the church full of hypocrites? Yes. Frankly, we have plenty of room for more. The church is full of hypocrites when we forget that fact. That we are about mercy. The church is full of hypocrites when we believe the lie that there's something awesome about us. The way we think, what we believe, the way we vote. That is why you hear me every week preach this message. It is to push against our hypocrisy. My hypocrisy. The church is a place for us to return each week to declare his mercies. This is the place where we delight in that mercy. To tell the truth about ourselves. The fact that we need that mercy. And we need it no less now than we ever did. To rest in that mercy and in that mercy alone. And then go and proclaim it to a needy world. Would you pray with me? Father, I know that uh, some of my friends here in this room struggle with the idea of the church. Struggle with it. We don't like it. We'd rather do things on our own, come in when we want, be kind of uh, tangential all of our lives. Because maybe we've just viewed church as like a, a, a pit stop, a place to go get our fill and then go on about our merry way. But you, God, have made the church. And in your wisdom, you know that we need it. We need it as a place to embrace our particular identity, our missional identity, and our identity of praise to you. We need it as a place for, for us when we struggle to be supported by one another. When a life falls off the rails for someone to gather us up, when we've blown it big time for someone to look at us and say, I love you. You did blow it, and I love you. So, Lord, I pray that you would build your church. 
not just Holy Cross. There are lots of great churches in the city. I pray that you'd build them. Those that proclaim the gospel, administer the sacraments, and, and, and guard those boundaries. I pray that you would, you would grow them. You would build them. You would make them places of pure praise to you out of your grace, out of your mercy. As we go from here, would you let us just sing of that mercy? We ask all this in Jesus' name.